I went to a school with a lot of rules, and I'm going to take a wild guess and say I'm not alone in that, going through grade school, and the school I went to was not shy about enforcing them or projecting the authority that enforced those rules. And so you'd hear about it if you broke any of them, and sometimes come under discipline, and I, that may have happened to me once or twice. But there's one episode I was particularly upset about. See, we were required to wear uniforms, and so dress code was one of the rules. But on picture day, you got to dress up. You didn't have to be in uniform, okay? Because they were your pictures. They're going home. That didn't stop me and several other students from getting detention for wearing jeans because it was against dress code. In my defense, they were nice jeans. And one might argue that perhaps this rule served to preserve a sense of formality, and perhaps one could argue that, except that the kid who was wearing sweatpants did not get a detention because they were not jeans. Sometimes rules seem like they're just there to remind us that somebody's got power over us, and we need to remember that, perhaps with no greater purpose than that, or maybe to make things easier on the one who gives them, or who has that power. I would have thought there was a rule about throwing axes at Covenant Harbor, but apparently there's not. I'm glad everyone got home in one piece. But in our passage today, we see God give his people a bunch of rules. Nonetheless, these are some of the most famous words in all of Scripture, commonly known as the Ten Commandments. So, at this point in Exodus, Israel has been freed from the oppression of slavery in Egypt, and now God meets with them at Mount Sinai and gives them these rules. Why is God giving them rules if they are free? What purpose do they serve? As we look at the encounter, we'll see what they mean for Israel and what they, what they mean for Israel's freedom and also for what it means for us to be free today. Last week, we saw Israel's dramatic deliverance from Egypt through God's judgment, by plagues culminating in the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt and the role of the Passover meal in Israel's rescue and eventually being freed from Egypt. And this is followed by another dramatic rescue. When they get to the sea, there's that scene of God's presence coming between Egypt and his people. And the sea opens so his people can cross, and eventually they're pursued by the Egyptian army, which is annihilated when God puts the sea back in its place. And since then, through this book, God has been showing Israel his provision. And there are several points where it says the people either argue or quarrel with Moses or grumble. That word grumble is used several times in episodes. First, when the army pursues and God comes to their rescue. But, and then, again, when there's no drinkable water. Yet again, when there's no food. And again, when there's no water. That we have these complaints, these arguments with Moses. And they often take the form of, in some way, saying, why did we leave Egypt? Even suggesting that they would have been better had they stayed in Egypt. But God provides for them 
each time. He makes the water drinkable at Mara, leads them to more water at Elim. When there is no food, he provides quail for them at night, and then the famous but mysterious manna, bread from heaven in the morning, that appears with the dew for them to gather each day. Each day, God providing a sufficient amount for that day, and then twice as much before the Sabbath so that they can rest. And then God provides water from a rock when there's no water again. And each time, God is showing who he is, telling them in chapter 15, 26, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. When he provides them quail and manna, he says in 16.12, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. He provides further. When they are attacked by the Amalekites, he provides them victory. Military victory. And then there's kind of this... This episode that seems like an aside where Moses is visited by his father-in-law, Jethro, who hears about what God has done and praises God for what he's done with Israel. And while it seems like an aside, it actually foreshadows a forthcoming reality because Jethro doesn't stay with Israel. And so it, it shows people gaining knowledge of the Lord outside of Israel. And then three months after they leave, they leave Egypt, Israel comes to the desert of Sinai and camps in front of the mountain. In chapter 19, God meets with Moses and has him communicate instructions to the people, and he communicates his intention for Israel. And then has Moses consecrate the people and establish limits around the mountain, telling them not to let anyone break through, or many will perish. And so Moses has them meet at the foot of the mountain. And the Lord descends on the mountain telling Moses the instructions. And God speaks to the people the words of chapter 20. And there's a dramatic scene. Smoke on the mountain and lightning. And, these are the, and then God speaks these words and they're the only commands spoken directly from the mountain to the people. And so we get these rules of course I'm being facetious because there's so much more than rules. In both the Bible and Jewish tradition, they're not even called the Ten Commandments. They're referred to as the Tablets of the Covenant or of the Testimony or even the Ten Words, which is how the passage begins. And so there are commands in them, but it's more than that. They are the foundation of behavior in the community of God's people. So what are we, particularly we Christians, who recognize that we are saved by grace and not by works, we who recognize that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law, what do we do with these rules? What do they mean for us? Do they have relevance for us today? Let's look at what they're doing for Israel and what they mean for us. And if we acknowledge what God says to Israel before this, we can see that God's commands keep Israel in relationship with him. God says in chapter 19, verse 5, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings 
and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel has been freed by God, and God is giving them a covenant to keep so that they will be his treasured possession to carry out his purposes in the world. He want, God wants to be in relationship with his people. This is pretty clear in the first few commandments, which directly address the dynamic of God and his people. When we're in chapter 20, we look at verses 2 and 3. From the beginning, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God doesn't want them to have any other gods because he wants to be their God, as he should be. He rescued them. He's provided for them. He created them. And the sentiment shows even more with verses, with verse 4, where he prohibits making images that might become idols. And while this might seem foreign to us today, there's no shortage of things we can turn into idols, as we talked about last week. We get the emotional weight of it. Verses 5 and 6, when he tells us that he is a jealous God. And some people struggle with the language of jealousy, because it usually has a negative connotation in English. But that's not the case in this point. This is not jealousy in terms of envy. This is not, this is jealousy, this is jealousy for something that is already his. God's jealousy is for his exclusive claim to Israel's loyalty. And this quality of God, the jealousy of God, it even becomes a source of hope for the prophets. Because it comes out of a place of love. It's like a husband or a wife's desire for the exclusive loyalty of their spouse. We might struggle with the language of God punishing subsequent generations for sin. But this is not a vindictive statement. Rather, God is expressing consequences that come from sin. Especially in a context where several generations could be living under the same household, often three or four. And so sin is going to affect those generations. Even today, it's common for people to suffer the effects of sin from generations past. Even to repeat those sins. All the same, God's love is greater. Extending love to a thousand generations for those who love him and keep his commandments, which is often how those cycles of sin break. Someone comes to knowledge of the Lord and they keep his commandments. He wants to be in the place of honor in our lives. His name honored and respected, not used carelessly, not, lift, not lifted up in an empty way or sworn by falsely. We just prayed this earlier, hallowed be thy name. He wants us to participate in his Sabbath rest with him. And while there's different views on what this means for us who follow Jesus, 
As you know, our Jewish neighbors observe Sabbath and worship on Saturday. We do it on Sunday because Christian tradition recognizes the Lord's Day, recognizing the resurrection reality. But the principle is resting with God. That's why it's to be kept holy unto God. And this is an image that the New Testament writers pick up on. Most notably in Hebrews chapter 4 where the hope of eternal life with God is expressed in terms of entering God's rest. God wants to be in relationship with his people. And he doesn't want anything getting in the way. The intertwining of the reverence, the holiness of God, and relationship is illustrated really well by Moses' words in verse 20. I love this verse. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. I love that. Do not be afraid so that the fear of God may be with you. There is a difference between being afraid and the fear of God or the fear of the Lord. I love what one commentator said about this. Being afraid is not enough to keep from sinning. And even modern psychology will tell us, more often than not, finger-wagging does not work to keep us in line. Love is a far more powerful motivator. That's why these two things are different. Being afraid keeps us away. The fear of God, the fear of the Lord, rather, is a reverence that acknowledges who God is, and because it acknowledges who God is, it trusts God and exercises that trust through obedience. If we continue, we see the further the commandments of God keep them free. They have already been freed. Obeying these commandments preserves their freedom under God's lordship. They have been saved by God. And so the commandments speak to the lifestyle that stays under God's protection, that stays in relationship with God. In the first 11 verses, they address how they relate to God. In the next six, address more directly how they should relate to each other. These are for Israel's good. These are for our good. True freedom does not mean doing whatever we want. The way the Bible speaks of freedom is living as we were intended to by God. And that's the place that we are truly free. And if we're tempted to see these as restrictions, let's just think about what a society ruled by these behaviors would look like. It's kind of difficult. Honor your father and mother. This command is more to adult children, or especially to adult children, to take care of their parents as they age. What would it look like if everyone was taken care of as they aged? Do not murder. Commands prohibiting killing, any, any kind of killing outside of God's law. What would it look like 
if the sanctity of life was upheld throughout life. And so the unborn protected, yes, but also a person's dignity and worth affirmed in every stage of life. The image of God recognized in everybody, regardless of social status, regardless of who you are, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of where you're from, or even what you've done. Do not commit adultery. The fidelity of marriage relationships respected and supported. And so the core of the family unit supported. And so supporting the love of the family that everyone is meant to grow up with. Do not steal. Do not covet. What would it look like if nobody took what wasn't theirs and more so didn't try to didn't scheme to do so and checked their hearts to keep them from trying to do so? Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. What would it be like if everyone told the truth and truthfully, not just partially, and didn't slander each other. These are the realities that these commands invite us into. I don't know about you, but I want to live in a place like that. So what about us? What about we who follow Jesus? As Christians, we can often have, it's not uncommon for us to have two tendencies when looking at God's commands, either here or elsewhere in Scripture. Either we might write them off as legalistic requirements used to establish law and order in a way that's no longer relevant to us. Or on the other hand, we simply view them as an impossible standard that has no bearing on us because we can't keep it anyway. The problem with that is Jesus had some significant things to say about God's law. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. When Jesus is asked, pretty directly, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replies, you know the commandments. And then proceeds to name the ones that highlight how we treat others. And when Jesus does this, he's not talking about earning God's grace. He's tying the commandments to life in God's kingdom. The reality that Jesus brought with his ministry and will bring in, his, in its fullness when he returns. When a teacher of the law asks, which is the most important commandment, Jesus replied, it says in Matthew 22, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And if you'll notice, these commandments are not directly in this passage, but they do frame the passage. The commands begin with love of God, and they end with love of neighbor. Which is why, even though he's asked about the most important, he's sure to mention the second. In Mark, when Jesus answers this same question, 
his reply is affirmed. And Jesus replies in turn, you are not far from the kingdom of God. This is kingdom living, these commands. To be clear, I am not talking about earning God's grace or salvation. Israel is already saved and freed from Egypt when they receive these commands. In some aspects, how we relate to the law is different after the death of Jesus. For instance, we have no sacrificial system anymore because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. But these commands, they're the foundation for Israel staying in relationship with God to live out their identity as a kingdom of priests to the world. They are the foundation for our identity and behavior for living as agents of God's kingdom that Jesus brought with his ministry. Purpose is meant to lead others to know God as well. In a letter that very much speaks against trying to justify oneself by the works of the law, the Apostle Paul gives us a helpful teaching on what the law means for those of us who have been freed by sin and death by Jesus Christ. In the book of Galatians chapter 5, he says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, meaning the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command Love your neighbor as yourself. Because we receive God's grace and are free, we respond by upholding the commandments. These words from God are so much more than just rules to keep. They're so much more than dress code. They're the foundation of an, an identity. They are our heritage that teach us to live out that identity as agents of God's kingdom in this world. And that's the, pl the, the place where we love God and express our love for God by loving the people that he created. Even as we love ourselves, that's the place where we are free. That's the place where we are closest to the heart of God. That's the place where we show people the reality of God's kingdom and show them God's heart for them as well. And in doing so, we invite them into the same freedom. Because we are free, let us love God and our neighbors, which he created. Let's continue worshiping the living God.